Hello, everybody. Chris Martinson here. And today we're going to be talking about finance and economics as part of Finance U. Remember, anything that you see in this video and all resources available at our websites or affiliated websites are not intended as or construed as financial advice. This is for educational purposes. Remember, if you have a financial decision, please consult a financial professional. We are not attorneys. We're not CPAs. We are not financial managers. As well, we do our best to be accurate and everything we represent is as accurate as we know it to be. Now, let's turn to our program. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Martinson. Welcome to this episode of Finance University, uh, Finance U. You can figure out what that shortens up to if you're an acronym kind of person. So here we are today, and I'm very, very pleased to be talking with none other than Jim Bianco, Bianco Research. I've been following him for a long time. He's got a lot of followers on Twitter. You can find him at BiancoResearch.com, I believe. And uh, yeah. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Good to see you today. No, thanks for having me, Chris. Looking forward to it. So uh, here, here's my operative frame for people. I think that people need to know about and deserve to educate themselves about what's going on in the big world of economics, macroeconomics, finance, because these things govern our lives and they operate unseen. I think they're made overly complicated by the industry simply so people don't understand what's going on. I like to make it simple. The Fed prints money. We live with the consequences. And so the rest is sort of trying to figure this out. So I want to start there. I want to start with probably the center of the nuclear reactor in this story, U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, they seem to, those U.S. Treasury bond market looks a little sick to me. I'm no expert. Love to get your opinion on it. But I'm watching prices fall, yields rise. Ten-year safely over 4% at this point, which is breaking a 15-year trend. and I just read today the U.S. government has to refinance $7.6 trillion of maturing bonds, plus probably another $2 trillion of uh, new stuff coming out. Uh, what do you make of all that? Well, yeah, you're right that the, the bond market has had an epic change. I think that the bear market or the bull market in bonds ended in August of 2020 when the 10-year yield hit 51 basis points. That means that as of August of 23, we've started the fourth year of a bear market. Now, the bull market in bonds went 40 years. The one before that went 35 years. The bear markets go you know, 20 to 30 years. So that means we're probably in a period of ever higher interest rates um, as we move forward. That's not necessarily for a bond investor. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You're going to get a coupon again. I, I mean, Chris and you are, I are old enough to remember when bonds used to give you a coupon instead of yeah. zero. And, and, and you're going to start getting a coupon again with bonds. You just have to be careful with the price. And so why has the, uh, the bond market turned? I think there's a combination of two things that's caused it to turn. I think the first one uh, is that the cycle on inflation has turned that we've bottomed out on inflation and we're in a period of ever higher inflation. Now that I've said ever higher, I don't mean 10, 12 Zimbabwe higher. I mean like three or 4% versus two, a doubling of the interest rate in the bond market. That's a big deal. Uh, and so we're going to have to deal with that. Compounding that is, you're right, the fiscal response, the monetary response has been the same as it was prior to 2020. And that is just print money, spend money like crazy, dump money into the economy to kind of, you know, electric shock the, uh, the patient back alive. And all that does is produce more inflation. And 
that's going to be the answer that I think we're going to see from here. And so those deficits that you talked about and all of that supply and bonds is going to continue. So we're going to be in a period of higher interest rates. That is going to be a problem for risk markets. I mean, that's a fancy way of saying the stock market. According to the University of Chicago and Ibbotson and Associates, they've done long-term studies in the stock market. It should return you 9% a year. That's its long-term average. Now, in the last two years, it's returned you roughly zero. It's down big last year, up nice this year, but zero over the last two years. But if you're now going to get 5.5% a money market fund or 5.5% a treasury bill, that's two-thirds of the return of the stock market with no risk. All right, there's there a risk in treasury bills? Maybe, but if they default, don't worry. That's going to be your 14th most important problem of the day. The other 13 are going to be survival at that point. Uh, so don't worry about treasury bills uh, defaulting. But nevertheless, there is an alternative. I could get most of the stock market's gain with no risk. That wasn't the case in 2019. So this higher interest rate thing, and I think brought about by inflation, is going to be the dominant story pretty much for the rest of the decade. All right, lot to unpack there, but I I, I want to go to this inflation story. Um, I'm this guy. I happen to think inflation is higher than advertised, and I've got a lot of data to support that. But let's go with the official inflation statistics such as they are. Um, and uh, when I look at the subcomponents of all of that, I can't. So a big drafting downwards for it, it's been energy. I look at energy right now. I see that oil's up roughly 30% since July. And I see good, solid, uh, fundamental reasons for why that's going to be higher. Because you remember, Jim, there was this narrative. I'm old enough to remember this. Peak oil demand is here because electric cars, right? Um, wasn't mm -hmm. a very well-formulated idea, but there it was. And it was dominating all the headlines. And I think a lot of people bought into it, including investors. In, but it, it's not the case. IEA now says we're at 103 million barrels of per day of demand. Last two months, probably it's going to be that way in the future. This is record demand. And then Saudi Arabia and Russia said, hey, how about some more production cuts? So I'm looking at, at some issues here. There's a little geopolitics, you know, mixed into this, obviously. But um, I don't see any way that that we're not going to be facing higher oil prices for a while. And I think that's going to be constructive for inflation. Our, inflation's kind of here, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I, I agree with you on oil. On oil. Oil demand, by the way, in the United States is also at a record. It's at around 20, 21 million mm -hmm. barrels a day. That's demand. And the U.S. is not, you know, has got a record deficit in terms of what it has to import, even though our supply is at a record. We're producing 13, 14 million barrels a day, which is a record for the U.S. We're just demanding this off, off the charts. And, you know, you are, you know, like you said, we're all talking about electric vehicles. Well, yeah, I mean, the future might be electric vehicles, but the present is still gasoline powered vehicles. Yeah. Uh, and the, and tomorrow's going to be gasoline powered vehicles right now. So oil is definitely moving higher. Now, the Saudis, you're right. They have voluntarily cut back a million barrels a day. And the Russians are in cahoots with the Saudis. And they cut back 300,000 barrels a day. And they're going to keep that. They announced just earlier this week, they're going to keep that through the end of the year. And that's going to help continue to push prices higher. Why do the Saudis want to see higher prices? Well, on Monday, the beginning of the week we're recording, they announced that they want to sell $50 billion worth of Aramco shares, another secondary offering of Aramco shares. Well, that's their big state oil, uh, oil run company. 
and nothing will get investors more excited to buy a state-run oil company than higher prices. So they want to definitely see those prices go up. I guess after you know financing you know uh, Live Golf and paying Ronaldo four hundred million dollars a year, uh, literally paying Ronaldo four hundred million dollars a year to play Saudi, uh, soccer in Saudi Arabia more than the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox's payrolls combined. They're going to need some extra money. So we're all going to pay it because they're cutting back on production to sell more shares uh, of Aramco to uh, feed their sovereign wealth fund for all of these endeavors that they have. So, yeah, I agree with you that, you know, the, the outlook for oil continues to look over the next couple of years higher. Does it, you know, is the outlook over the next 10 to 15 years lower because maybe we switch to electric vehicles? Sure, I'm open to that idea although I think there's some problems with it, but that's not what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next, I think, is going to be higher prices. Yeah, well, this is interesting because I've, I've heard that uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the KSA, they have, uh, they got a lot of social programs. Uh, they need oil to be 100 or higher. So I think that's probably their line in the sand, their bogey, their, their shooting for here. Um, but what's interesting to me about that, Jim, is, is that they're doing that and the U.S. seems to have no influence on that anymore you know you get the awkward fist bumps with with president biden you know when soon as air force one is wheels up heading home they're busy cutting different deals with china see it feels like a really different changed world around this and um and what i'm worried about is that my country has this narrative that i run into all the time which is oh we're saudi america dude we we produce we're, we're exporting oil and then you get it's all this complicated stuff because we're not because i oil is oil to me Natural gas liquids and liquid gas hydrocarbons is the butane and ethane that's a coincident thing from this amazing Marcellus shale gas and other plays like that, but it's not oil. And we mix it all up for some reason when obviously we used to keep it separate because you should. And and then we tell ourselves a story about it. I, I'm concerned that people think the United States is in a better oil position than it actually is at this stage. We're an oil importing nation when you use oil the way I define it. And that means we... Yeah, we have the same issues as any other oil importing nation, right? Right. And, and you know, when we export, we also got to consider where we're exporting to. I mean, first of all, as I mentioned before, we are producing more oil than we ever have. Uh, but sure. the problem is our demand is through the roof. We're not keeping up with our demand. And when we export our oil, where are we exporting it to? And the, and the question is, or the answer mm -hmm. is the Caribbean. We don't build refineries. The refineries are being built in the Caribbean. And then we send it down to the Caribbean. They reformulate it into gasoline. And then it's barged up the East Coast. Now, that it works yeah. for the Caribbean because the Saudis tried many years ago to build, make gasoline, put it on tankers and send it over the ocean to the U.S. It turns into varnish. You, you, can't, you can't put it on a tanker for that long, but you can in the Caribbean. And so you've heard the line that we haven't built a new refinery in 40 years. We've been expanding the ones we have, but they haven't been keeping up. They're being built in Barbados is where they're being built in with where, by the way, they have much lower environmental standards than if we were to actually build them in the United States. And that's who we're, 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 we're sending it to. And in addition to that, mm. they are also getting that oil from other countries, being Venezuela, Saudi Arabia and all the other OPEC and OPEC plus producers as well. So, yes, we are still dependent on oil. And finally, it is a world market. It, you know, there is not any evidence that oil is a commodity. It literally is a commodity and it trades like a commodity. There is never going to be a point in the world where 
the oil price in the U.S. is $30 and the oil price in Europe is $60 and the oil price in Russia is $120. It's going to be the same price throughout the world because oil is fungible. So if the world is in deficit, even if we are in um, um, surplus, our oil price is going to reflect the, the world oil price. Let me cut to the chase. If we're talking about, the, uh, you know, if your country's in surplus, then you're safe. Canada's in surplus. They produce a ton of oil and they only got 22 million people. So the price of oil is much lower in Canada and the price of gasoline is much lower. No, it's the same price. Now they have different taxes on it and they have different regulations on it, but it's the same price. It's a world market. So that whole idea that we we can somehow separate ourselves from the rest of the world, we really can't. If the world is out of balance, the price of oil goes up. If the world is in surplus, the price of oil goes down. And right now the world's out of balance. There's too much demand relative to supply and the Saudis and the Russians are cutting back and we're seeing higher prices. Now, this is something that that really the Fed can't do anything about this, right? This is just structural inflation. So let's talk about the Fed and inflation for a minute, because they said 2%, 2%, 2%, which I consider theft anyway, right? That's just, mm -hmm. we're going to have our money every 35 years. And while now maybe it's 3%, okay, great. Now we're going to have our money every 22 years or whatever the number turns into. Um, but we're, we're sitting, I think, obviously closer to 4% right now, if you, once you factor in the right things, I think. So whatever the number is, do you believe that the Fed is going to go to a 2% target? Is is that really what they're going after? Or is there some other some other thing going on back there? Well, first of all, the 2% target came about about 15 years ago. And it's very clear if you talk to Fed officials that they kind of made it up. You know, one was too low, three was too high, two sounds like a good number, um, you know, and so they're kind of stuck with it. Now, Nominally, they they have a two percent goal over some period of time. They want to get the inflation rate back to two percent by raising interest rates and tightening monetary policy. Um, you know, the problem is you pointed out is is that a realistic goal? You know, that's like I have a goal. I want to high jump seven feet. Um, I'm not high jumping seven feet, no matter how hard I work at it. But it's a goal. And, you know, is there is getting the inflation rate back to 2% sort of like me wanting to high jump seven feet? Um, you know, it's an unrealistic goal. I agree with you that it's more like, you know, a three or 4% inflation world that we are in right now. Now, there's two reasons I think the Fed is focused on that goal. In May of 2022, uh, Jay Powell was called to the White House. And he sat on the couch in the Oval Office. Janet Yellen was there and the president was there. And the president literally, literally pointed at him and said, America, that's the guy that's going to get rid of inflation. Don't look at me. Talk to Jay. He's going to make it go away. OK, well, the mandate came down from up high that inflation is the Fed's responsibility. So they're focused on trying to get it back to their target. If they try to give up on that target and say, well, maybe the target's really three or four, like we're talking about, they, they run risk of hurting their credibility. Uh, your target's not a target, it's until it becomes inconvenient and then you make up another one. So they're gonna try and continue that way. So what does that mean for investors? What does it mean for us? They're gonna keep the phrase you hear on Wall Street is higher for longer. They're gonna keep raising interest rates and they're gonna keep, and if they don't raise them, they're not gonna cut them. I know a lot of people on Wall Street think they're going to cut interest rates next year unless the economy really takes it hard, you know, a downturn, real bad downturn. There's going to be no rate cuts next year. Um, 
you know, unless you get that kind of downturn. Otherwise, there could be more rate hikes as we go forward. Last off for you about the inflation rate being maybe closer to three or four. Why? Other than oil. I've argued that the biggest economic event of our lifetime was the shutdown and restart of the global economy in 2020, the reboot. We rebooted it. And guess what? It didn't come back the same way. Now, that's not necessarily bad. It's just different. I don't want to you know, paint that as dystopian. It's different. The biggest difference we all are aware of is remote work. According to Bloomberg, on any given day, one third of the desks at offices around the world are empty. Those people are working at home on that particular day. Higher percentage on Monday and Friday, lower percentage Tuesday through Thursday. That changes a lot of things, specifically at your level. What I mean by at your level is pre-pandemic, you, you and I were home two days a week, Saturday and Sunday. Post-pandemic, we're probably home four days a week, Saturday and Sunday, Monday, Friday, in the office, Tuesday through Thursday, but working Monday and Friday from home. I've doubled the amount of time I'm in my house. My lifestyle's changed. Your lifestyle's changed. Uh, I demand different things now, demand more, uh, other, uh, more of some things, less of other things. No less than the retailers have been struggling with this for two years. They'll tell you that the retailers will tell you that they've got simultaneous gluts and shortages of product all the time. They're still trying to figure out what it is the American consumer wants because it's changed so much. That's the friction that is keeping prices higher. The supply chains are really struggling with it. First, they were very tight and we had very high you know, cost of shipping. Then the shipping prices plummeted. But earlier this year, shipping prices bottomed and they're starting back up again because we might be getting to a, a, a tighter supply chain. So the supply chain is going to run through these wild cycles as well until we figure out what's going on with this post-pandemic economy. And a final thought for you on this. If there's an historical analogy to this, it might be after World War II. Um, but the big difference was VJ Day came, September 45, and we all knew the war was over. In October 45, the payroll report showed that 2 million people lost their jobs. That was the highest number until we had the COVID shutdown. We celebrated that because those people were making tanks and P-51 Mustangs. We didn't need them anymore. The war was over. We were, from day one, we were arguing about how do we transition to a consumer-led economy? Now, those 2 million people were happy to lose their jobs. They didn't want to make Sherman tanks anymore, but they got another job quickly because we transitioned to a consumer economy and we boomed through the 50s you know, um, with, with some volatility in the early part. In 2023, we should be talking about a post-pandemic economy, restructuring the economy, kind of like we did after World War II, but no, we want to have an argument about it. We want to have Dave Solomon at Goldman Sachs demand everybody get back into the office five days a week, which at Goldman means six days a week, 11 hours a day, because that's the way they work there. We, we want to you know, use the word normalization. If you listen to financial television, Bloomberg, CNBC, and you listen to talking heads from Wall Street, they'll talk about things normalizing. What does normalization mm -hmm. mean? Return to 2019. We're not going back there. Now, I might not have the, all the answers of where we're going. I just know we're not going back there is what we're doing. And we have to figure out what the new era is. But instead of figuring out what the new era is, all the brightest minds on Wall Street are saying there is no new era. 
We're just going to go right back to where it used to be in 2019. You just wait. Give it another year or two. We'll be we'll be right back there. Until we figure it out, those frictions are going to stay. Those elevated prices are going to stay. Those supply chain gluts, shortages, glut shortages are going to continue to cycle through. Once we figure out we're in a new era, and then we sit down and say, okay, how do we restructure for this new post-pandemic era? Then we could get past that. But it, but you know, we like I said, we started that in day one of 1945. We're three years past the shutdown restarts, and we're still arguing whether or not we even need to do it in the first place. That's brilliant. You know, I think one area era that, that a lot of people could maybe identify what you're talking about instantly is air travel. Air travel is a complete nightmare right now, right? Canceled flights, staff shortages, um, you know, missed connections. It, it's been like, it's like, personally, um, you know, if it's if it's got one more than one stop, <laughs> yeah. you have to factor in a big buffer now, you know, and get ready for an ordeal. Uh, that's just how it is, you know? You want to know why it is that way too, is that if you look at the TSA throughput numbers, the number of people that go through security at TSA, we're back to you know the 2019 levels. Oh, we mm-hmm. normalized. No, not quite. Because what the data will show, if you listen to the conference calls of the airlines and stuff, is business travel, because of remote work, is maybe 60, 70% of the way back. It's still one third of business travelers are gone. So how did we get TSA throughput all the way back? Because personal travel is through the roof. So on a Tuesday afternoon, you're going to be in the airport and you used to be in the airport with a bunch of slobs on their way to New York for business meetings. Now you're in the airport with a bunch of families and lots of little kids running around and the airlines are struggling with that. They used to run business routes Tuesday afternoon. Now they need to be running routes that families take on Tuesday afternoon. That's why the airport, while it's busy and it's chaotic, is not quite there. Yes. People are showing up just like they're showing up in the store. I'm showing up in the store to buy something, but you're putting on the shelves what you put on the shelves in 2019. That's not what I want to buy. I'm showing up at the airport to go somewhere, but no, I'm not here to go to New York for a business meeting. I'm here with my family to go on vacation on Tuesday. And that's what they're really struggling with right now. And I think there was a, a, there's a cultural shift in here as well. I think a lot of those people who are now work from home, they don't, they don't want to go back to the office. Like once that spell got broken, I think it's, I think it's cooked. I think this is a permanent change. People have no, like behaviors changed big time. I think it's, it's changed in ways. Look, I've minced the words about this. I'm in Chicago and Chicago is where Haymarket Square is. And that was the big riots in 1888 that led to the eight hour workday, the five day work week. I think what's happened post-COVID is the biggest thing that's happened since then. We've essentially blown up the eight-hour day, five-day work week. We're in the process of we're in the process of blowing it up right now. And you're right; you've seen tremendous pushback about going to the office. You've seen tremendous pushback about return to the office. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, 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 Twitter is a great example of that. You know, Elon Musk was a very ardent. Uh, return to the office. And he said, you can remote work all you want. You just can't remote work here. And then the f- people he didn't fire from Twitter all threatened to quit because they didn't want to go back to the office. He had to relent on it. GM has had to relent on it. And not only has GM had to relent on it for their office workers, but the UAW is now 
um, threatening to have a massive strike. And one of their big planks is they want a 32 hour work week. That's a four day work week. They want to go. To, they want a day. They want a remote day, too. Uh, I don't know how you build a car remotely, but they want a remote day, just like just like the yeah. office workers want a remote day. So, yes, we are not going back. I think what we have to do is we have to learn how to manage people when they're partially remote as opposed to being in the office. And last thought for you, nor should we go back. A lot of service sector jobs, office jobs, are two things. They're collaboration and their proficiency. Those are fancy words. Collaboration is I have to get together with the people I work with, with my vendors, the people that supply me stuff with my customers face-to-face. -face. Nothing beats that. Agreed. Zoom is nice, but it isn't ever going to be the substitute for face-to-face. -face. That, you're right. But that's not the only thing you get paid on. Most people, if you ask them about their office job, they get paid on proficiency. What does that mean? That means, did you get the emails out? Did you update the spreadsheet? Did you put the, the, the PowerPoint presentation? Did you do all of that stuff? Best place to do that stuff is at home. Let me put up my computer, connect to the internet. Don't walk in my office every three minutes and ask me if I saw the game last night. Let me just finish this report, these emails, this PowerPoint. So we're much more efficient on the proficiency side of our jobs by being remote. So nor we shouldn't go back to the office. I think a lot of people like being at home. You know, they say, well, they're screwing around at home a little bit. Yeah, because... What used to take me seven hours in the office to do takes me four at home because no one's walking into my office every three minutes to distract me so I can get that stuff done. So there is an argument to be made that we should remain somewhat hybrid. Look, fully remote maybe doesn't work. Fully in the office doesn't work. We're some version of hybrid and we should stay that way. Well, you're. I guess you would say that then commercial office space is probably a, a bad sector for a while. It, it's a bad sector only because it's, well, it's over, it's overbuilt right now. A lot of companies are still stuck with leases that they still have to pay on, even though no one's there. Uh, even though mm. the building is empty, it still might be profitable because they're still paying on leases. But eventually they're going to have to start to figure out um, what they're going to, you know, what they're going to do once those leases expire. And I think that, you know, the, the, the office sector is finally coming to a realization that, uh, people don't want to come here. And it isn't the office. You know, Jamie Dimon likes to talk about, he's got this beautiful new billion dollar building in Midtown Manhattan for JP Morgan, and nobody wants to go there. Yeah, I know why they don't want to go there. It's not the building. It's the New Jersey Transit. It's the Port Authority. It's the New York City subway system. You know, if if I don't get shot or mugged, I don't really like smelling urine going to work every day. If you could fix that, and, yeah. may, and by the way, fix that means that I commute in from some of New Jersey to Midtown Manhattan 20 minutes, not an hour and a half with a delay three times a week. Then maybe I might I might I might consider coming to the office more. That's going to not be fixed. That's just that's unfixable. And so this is going to be a permanent way of that things are going to be done right now. And I think that, like I said, managers got to stop whining that people aren't coming back in the office and figure out how to manage a remote work staff. Yeah, last time I was in um, New York City, pretty recently, uh, all of Madison Avenue, it seemed like, was just boarded up. You know, uh, the, the retail street trade has been absolutely just destroyed, not decimated, just ruined. It looks I think like. it's been destroyed for two reasons. I think reason one is that a lot of that was structured on, you know, the, the office worker, that people 
that we were going to get a natural foot traffic from everybody coming into the office. And that's down by a third to half. And the other one is the euphemism that the retail trade uses for, for shoplifting. They call it shrinkage. They call it inventory shrinkage. shrinkage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That wasn't a bunch of criminals that ran in and stole stuff. My inventory shrinked is what is what uh -huh. it was. And so there's that there's that problem too. Um, and so there, you know, the retail industry's got a definite problem that it's going to have to start to figure out where are the people. I don't have a problem going to a store. You don't have a problem going to a store. But if the only option is that store is on Madison Avenue and I'm in Summit, New Jersey, you stick with my New York City example, uh, hello, Amazon is basically what the answer is. I'm not going to drive in and go to that store. And, you know, um, unless it's a unique kind of store and there ain't very many of those, it's not enough to support the economy. All right. Talking about this shrinkage, though, uh, maybe I spend too much time on Twitter, but, you know, I see all the videos now and it's like daily of swarms of people. That's as close as I'll characterize them. Younger people in particular uh, swarming into a store, mobbing it and just, you know, raiding it and, and or just individual people casually shoplifting. I'm I'm old enough, Jim, to remember that nobody would ever casually shoplift. Like, I think it's a moral it's a moral failing. It's a moral failing if you want to put it in those terms. Yes, that shoplifting has, you know, in some in some areas like in New York City, um, excuse me, in San Francisco, you know, uh, they don't prosecute you if you shoplift less than $900. So $890, you're good to go. You know, $900, you might get prosecuted. They just passed a law in San Francisco now that they've made it illegal for the uh, for the, the staff in retail establishments to do anything about shoplifting. Um, yeah. Now, I get it. I don't hire a shop. I don't hire a clerk in my store to expect them to tackle a shoplifter. That's not their mm -hmm. job. Uh, but their job might be to take prudent steps to prevent shoplifting, call the police, lock the doors, you know, something along those lines. But apparently we're we're even frowning on that. Well, the retail trade is definitely in, in a big problem. And even at the high end, it's a problem, too. You've probably seen on Twitter in the last day or two, you know, there's there's videos going around. And I've heard this, too, that Beverly Hills is a ghost town. Because, you know, if you're going to go rob Gucci, there's no better Gucci store to rob than the one on Rodale Drive. And it's been robbed so many times this year. And such other ones have been robbed. Or I'm sorry, their inventory has been shrunk so many times this year, <laughs> you know, that uh, th those stores are starting to close left and right, even on Rodale Drive. So it is definitely something that mm. is going to. I'm optimistic enough to think that the, you know, everything runs in cycles. So we're in a down cycle right now. And eventually people will get fed up with it. They won't like it anymore. We'll change the politicians. We'll change the laws and there'll be an up cycle and this will go away. But right now we're in the down cycle on this and it's, it's not good yeah. and it's not going to get better tomorrow, but maybe soon it will start to get better when people have had enough. Now, the other trend I've been seeing is, um, yeah, TikTok videos, uh, younger people, 20, 30, 40, uh, crying, saying, I'm still living at home. I earn 60, 70,000. I can't, I can't move out. And I get it, right? Like if you, if you look at the median income against the median household, against a 7% mortgage against in the United States, at least what happens with just a healthcare cost, I don't know how people would make it on the media. I literally don't know how it happens, right? Uh, you, cause you can easily see that 50 or more percent of your income just goes to just trying to live and stay warm and get to work. Uh, so it doesn't leave a lot of, lot throw of two squeeze kids left in there. there. Throw, throw, two kids throw a couple in there. kids. 
Yeah. Now we're now we're sinking. Now now the nose is beneath the wave. So so um, what's what's going like like if you were if you're that age or you're talking to somebody younger like like how do they look at this? It feels like systemic oppression, right? To me, it kind of is. The Fed the Fed made that happen. High house I, prices are an act of policy, not like a omen from nature that we can't interpret, you know, properly. Oh, I, I agree that we've, to some degree, we have made that happen. We've made that happen because a lot of the policies, zero interest rates and the like, have been have been promoting this higher stock prices. Uh, look, if we own stocks, I own stocks, you own stocks, sure, I'm, I'm, not, I'm happy that stock prices go up. But if you look at the data, and Jay Powell cites this data too. 60%, 6-0, 60% of the American public has less than $10,000 in savings. And something like a third of the American public has effectively no savings. So what does a stock market rally mean for them? Nothing. It means nothing for them. They can't afford a house. They can only afford to rent. And rents are going up because home prices are getting more expensive. So, you know, the asset owners at the higher end, you own your home, you know, you own some stocks, you maybe own a business. All that stuff goes up in price because of easy money. Okay, you're fine with it. But the majority of the country is not. And this is probably why we've got such, you know, strife in this country and political polarization in this country and such dour mood in this country. I understand it completely. Look, I've got I've got three adult children that are all in their 20s. And they're none of them live at home, thankfully. But, you know, then they all they make good livings. But it's hard to keep it's hard for them to, to make ends meet. And I thought about that. What if they you know, what, what about when they want to get married and have two kids? I don't know what they're going to do when they marry and, and want to have two kids. They're not at that stage in their life yet, but it is very difficult. It should not be that hard, but it it, mm. it is. And that's in it. That is showing up in a lot of the data right now. I agree. And you just mentioned the stock market, Jim. Um, a lot of concentration. It looks like it, we, there used to be the Nifty Fifty. Now, what is it? The Fab Five. I mean, it's it's magnificent not a lot seven. Of, yeah, <laughs> the magnificent seven. Um, what's going on with the stock market? It, it, what? How do you explain the behavior of just a few stocks really driving the show? Well, yeah. So, so let's start with the magnificent seven. So, the, you know, that's the Apples, the Amazons, the Facebooks, uh, um, the Teslas, the Googles, um, uh, and the like. Uh, it's AI. It's artificial intelligence. Uh, there's an old saying that I keep trying to remind myself and people about when it comes to transformational technology like AI. In the short term, we tend to overestimate its impact. And in the long term, we tend to underestimate its impact. And we saw this in the 2000s. In the 2000s, I'll use, one, I'll use the example. In December of 99, December of 1999, Jeff Bezos was Time Magazine's man of the year. They were still politically incorrect. It was man of the year, not person of the year. And it was because of the online revolution coming the online. We're all going to be buying stuff online. Well, we hyped Amazon stock to the moon at that point. Now, in 99, that was $100 a share. By 2001, it was trading $6 a share, lost over 90% of its value. By 2010, it was still trading $100 a share. It eventually went to $3,300 before it split. Uh, you know, so... There was in the short term, we overhyped online revel, online retailing, stock crashed 90%, and it took you 11 years to break even. In the long term, 25 years later, it turned out to be a giant winner if you suffered through a 90% correction and held it for 11 years. 
I think that that's the risk we have with with AI right now. In the short term, we're overhyping it in that there is going to be a risk of a significant correction in very difficult times for a lot of those stocks. In the long term, if we fast forward and we get together, and I'd be happy to talk to you about this in 25 years, I think we're going to find that AI was transformational. And what it did was it, it created entire new industries, eliminated other industries, and we're going to underestimate its impact on the long term. Last thought for you. Um, I'm in Chicago again, Northwestern University, just up the road in Evanston. There's a great economist friend of mine up there, Bob Gordon, and he's done some groundbreaking work on uh, what technology means for jobs. And what technology tends to do is it's a net creator, a creator of jobs. The problem is when you have a transformational technology like AI, it's very easy to figure out the jobs it will eliminate. It's going to eliminate a lot of uh, jobs in law. It's going to eliminate because we used to hire, you know, we hire kids right out of college, out of uh, out of law school, and their jobs are to review contracts. Well, they're all reviewed instantaneously by AI, and they're done. They're done much better, and their the spelling and the punctuation and grammar is all corrected instantly by AI. Don't need to hire armies of kids out of school. Uh, same thing with um, publishing saying, you know, editors, editor jobs are going to be a, a, a problem. Just to give you two examples, it's easy to see the jobs are going to lose. Whole entire new industries that are going to employ millions of people are going to be created in the next 25 years. They don't exist now. And it's really hard to figure out where they are. The great example I like to use on that is in 2007, when, um, you know, um, the iPhone one was created, uh, and Steve Jobs held it up and he said, this is going to change everything. He was right. But raise your hand if you said in three years, that's the end of the taxi industry. In four years, that's the end of the uh, hotel industry because of Airbnb and Uber. I didn't know it was going to be that. You didn't know it was going to be that. Nobody knew it was going to be that. But when you unleash a technology on that, whole new industries will pop up and whole new industries will pop up because of AI. So the good news is, yeah, it will be a creator of jobs. It won't be a destroyer of jobs. But the problem is I can see the jobs are going to go away. I don't know the jobs that are coming and we've overhyped it for right now. And maybe in 25 years, it turns out to be a good investment if you want to sit through a 90% correction in 10 years of dead money, um, you know, in the NVIDIA's. I'm not saying that's what NVIDIA will do, but that's what Amazon did after 2000 before it eventually took off. Well, fantastic. Thanks for those thoughts, Jim. That's all the time we have for today. Um, President of Bianca Research. Jim, how can people follow you? Where, where's the best place to keep up with your amazing thoughts? Oh, thank you. Um, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn are probably the two, Twitter being the main one, YouTube. Just look for Bianca Research. Uh, you know, I have to give this, um, same thing with you too. I have to give this uh, warning. Look for the one with 300 plus thousand followers in the blue check mark. There's lots of scam accounts that are, are that are made up of me like you. Elon has to fix that. I can't fix that. So be sure that you follow the right one. Jim Bianco on, on LinkedIn. BiancoResearch.com is our website where we provide research for institutional investors. And, um, you know, YouTube as well, too. We put up a lot of videos up on YouTube as well under uh, Bianco Research. Thank you. Well, well, good. Thanks so much for your time today. And we'll do this again sometime. Um, sure. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.
Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle, so it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out. Just a few fields. You hit send. What happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year. So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.